This is writer and game designer Robin D. Laws. And this is game designer and writer Kenneth Hyde. And this is our podcast, Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff. Recorded in front of a live audience at Dragon Meet. Amid the impersonal grandeur of the Hotel Novotel Hammersmith. Where we have to throw out our Liz Trust jokes all unused. <laughs> if I'm reading these words, it's actually finally happening. The band is back together. Bandwidth and travel considerations brought to you by Pelgrane Press. We can't predict topics. But they just might include... Tabletop and adventure gaming. Elliptony. Time travel. Cinema. Occultism. And that weird article you forwarded us. And of course, food. All I want for weirdness is my... Uh, Don't you mean Christmas? No, I mean weirdness. All I want for weirdness is Weird Little Elf from Atlas Games. Ah, yes, the little bitty holiday game that's a little bit weird. This fast and easy family party game is the perfect not-boring activity for your next holiday gathering. Santa's elves are working hard to finish all the toys in Santa's workshop. But something isn't right. The elves are acting very strangely. Rumor has it that a terrible imp has snuck into the workshop to sabotage the toys and ruin Christmas. But the elves can be mischievous too, and Santa's having trouble telling who's who. So he gathers all the elves around and asks them one simple question. So it's playable with practically any group, any size, any age. It's a light social deduction game where the imp is a hidden role that non-gamers and even young kids can handle with funny physical tells like scratch your nose and cross your eyes. It's an acute palm-sized box that looks like a gift wrap present. It's perfect as a stocking stuffer. Get your holiday shopping done early. Give one to everyone in your family and buy enough for all your co-workers, teachers, and daycare staff. Order one for each of your gamer friends. You know they don't already own it. And keep one for yourself. Uh, so in our live episodes, we traditionally begin by thanking our beloved Patreon backers. So if you are a uh, Patreon backer, please stand up and accept the applause of everyone else here. If you listen to the show as opposed to have wandered in here by accident, they're the people who make it possible for the show to continue every week. So we love you backers, and thank you so much for keeping us going. And if you're familiar with the live format, you will know that the next thing coming up is, of course, the legendary Nerd Trope cards uh, created for us uh, many moons ago by uh, friend Cal of Tate. We have a nerd deck. We have a trope deck. We draw a nerd card and a trope card, and then Ken puts them together, and I sit back and maybe throw in a wisecrack or two. And the nerd card is... We've done that one for sure. Yeah, that one. That one for sure. (laughs) That one. We're running out of nerds. We're running out of... Weirdly weirdly enough. Yes. Okay, there we go. Samurai. Samurai. And Dark Fantasy. Samurai Dark Fantasy. Well, that's actually kind of a a slow bowl, as the kids say. The kids never said that. Um, (laughs) Samurai Dark Fantasy is really just watching Qui-Don and getting hot up, right? I mean, the notion of the samurai, obviously, is the elite warrior class of medieval Japan, not dissimilar to the medieval knight, someone who lives to train in the arts of the sword. They are meant to defend the interests of their lord, in this case the daimyo, and uh, the code of Bushido knits them together in the same way that the code of chivalry theoretically knitted the flower of French and to a lesser extent European knighthood uh, to the interests of their liege lord. Bushido is a little uh, more uh, rigorous 
uh, certainly in practice or in legend, than uh, the code of chivalry was. I don't know if that's because the competing pole of Christianity gives you a spiritual out to mess with your Lord or what, but for whatever reason, it strikes me that the tight bonds of samurai to daimyo extending even unto death indicate that maybe we're talking about something not unlike the fairy timed in which you owe a gift of life to the fairy lords. And if you speculate that perhaps each of these daimyo, who coincidentally are symbolized uh, heraldically by a given flower, are actually representatives of an unseely court. Uh, forgive me for not going right to Google Translate and looking up Japanese for unseely, but I'm sure <laughs> everyone here knows what it is, so I'd yeah. just be wasting your valuable time. But the notion that the daimyo are, uh, in fact, undying intelligences, perhaps seeded down from father to son through a creepy, uh, dark Buddhist reincarnated lineage type situation, or maybe just straight up fairy magic, it's not for me to say, uh, but that the bonds of the samurai become magically enforced as opposed to merely morally enforced bonds, and that, I think, begins to get a modern, atomized Western mindset into why it is that you would, for example, uh, do the whole 47 Ronin thing of killing yourself after you've avenged your, your daimyo's death, and why breaking your bond literally turns you into an outcast, someone who cannot be accepted into polite society. And you begin to uh, bleed the notions of sort of the, uh, the darkest elements of Scott's fairy lore with the uh, implacable morality of the samurai story. The result being that when Admiral Perry shows up, in or Commodore Perry shows up in the 1850s, he does not show up and just say, look at this, a functioning ironclad, good luck Japan. Instead, he is showing up to a Japan that has been ruled for, give or take, 800 years by undying fairy lineages. And because it's isolated, right. that's why the rest of the world doesn't know that the fairies have taken over, that there's been this vast supernatural right. inbreak in this one place in the world. And it also, of course, explains why they were able to summon up a uh, magical storm to defeat the Mongols when they attempted to invade Japan, and also why Korea was able to defeat the Japanese invasion with a ship made of cold iron. Ooh, very interesting. And so the, you have a situation where the uh, uh, forces of modernization, the Meiji Restoration, becomes an attempt to rebel against uh, fairy overlordship, or I suppose we could call it Oni overlordship if we wanted to get all Japanese about it. And that the uh, the parallel there is the modernization of England in which the fairies all had to leave on the fairy flit, as Kipling reminds us. So you have the Americans, and to a lesser extent the Dutch and the uh, British, funneling anti-daimyo, anti-oni, anti-fairy iron and iron implements in specific forms to uh, help overthrow the daimyo. The daimyo then are attempting to radically draw in as many other strains of magic from all over right. East Asia. And, and the invading powers presumably are torn between destroying the fairy magic and stealing it. Right. They probably yeah. all agree with each other, we're just going to destroy it, and then they all quietly go off and go, except we're going to steal it, right. right? Yeah. And so you get, you know, the one guy who's tattooed with all the, the lore, and so he gets smuggled back and forth between Nagasaki and uh, and wherever else. So there is a uh, a possibility where you are playing the the rebels against the fairy tyranny. You could be playing the samurai who are tied to this fairy lineage and have mystical abilities to chop things in half with their magic sword that you lose once the um, uh, the, the daimyo uh, 
curse slash gift is removed, and uh, you have the possibility of playing uh, the Westerners, who are just in it, uh, as Robin suggests, to loot. And that gives you a nice three-handed setting, which, of course, what you want in a setting, so that you can always be betrayed by the guy you were allied with against the other faction at the last minute. Then you could possibly go into the notion that the Ainu, who are theoretically the... Um, uh, the, the uh, nationality, the, the, the tribe from which the samurai descended, are themselves connected to the lost Tokarian civilization of Central Asia, who, of course, wore plaid, had red hair, and probably spoke a, a language more similar to Celtic than any other Indo-European language. But that, of course, would get us into a whole different set of cards. So, sadly, there we are. And so that is our 2022 Dragon Meat Nerd Trope card. down foul sorcerers in a corrupt city. Clamber through underground ruins. Infiltrate the treasure vault of your decadent rival. Backstab your way to power and influence. In Swords of the Serpentine. The gumshoe game of swords and sorcery, investigation and intrigue. By Kevin Culp and Emily Dresner. And your mighty feud pals at Pelgrane Press. Strap on your blades for danger and forbidden knowledge. Tap into the corrupting source of sorcery for knowledge and power. Sharpen your tongue for the rigors of social combat. Prophesy secrets from the past, present, or future. Seek glory, justice, or the chance to live another day on the winding streets of Eversink. That's Swords of the Serpentine. Available now from Pelgrane Press. So you also probably know the rest of the drill, which is the rest of the live episode is all about your questions. This time we're going to be uncharacteristically amplified, including the questions. So uh, we're going to put this microphone into the audience. You're going to speak clearly into the microphone. Your words will come out of the speaker and into our recording device so that for once we won't have to keep repeating the question and ruining the rhythm. So uh, who, preferably uh, near the front, wants to start with the first exciting question. And we'll hand you the microphone, and then you'll pass it along to the next questioner. Who's the questioner? There we go. There we go. What event, situation, or occurrence in 2022 has sufficient gaming compatibility that it should enter the trope stack? Mmm. Or is it the trope stack or the nerd stack? Where you put? Oh, it's the trope stack, right? That's right. where history goes. Well, I mean, the obvious answer is the Ukraine war. Uh, that's the biggest... I mean, we have a lot of wars in here. Yeah. But the trouble with modern-day events in general is that they're still going on, so you don't know how they end. And also, it's, you know, a little sensitive, right? A little little nervous-inducing. And uh, you have a situation where, as they say, comedy is tragedy plus time. I think nerd-troping is also tragedy plus time, to a, to a larger extent. So I might... I'm always, you know, keeping an eye out for what country seems to have a, to be a role-playing setting that has accidentally fallen into our world. For a while it was Indonesia, then it was Venezuela. Right now, I think that if you're looking at what's going on that makes a superb nerd-troping, we did a whole segment on the Wagner Group, and I think that the sort of 
a French withdrawal from their neo-colonialist posture in Africa and the vacuum being filled by the Russians, while it still has plenty of individual tragedies and even war crimes, is a, uh, a broader canvas and might make for good fun. Plus, you get to do all the sort of Foreign Legion Mysteries of the Sahara type fun stuff. I think if you're going to bring in contemporary things, as Ken has suggested, you want to dial down a level of, of sensitivity. So, for example, I think the perfect thing to use now is Elon taking over Twitter because he's already a megalomaniacal villain, as if Bond gave him Twitter to sign up for and prevented him from building a volcano island. Uh, so last night's game was uh, revealed to be a, a, a veiled... Uh, satire of uh, Elon taking over Twitter. So something like that. <laughs> it took you a while to get the... Did it? You did it? Um, so uh, I, I think something like that that is uh, a, a little uh, goofier. But not, not, I, I mean, Elon is both a nerd and a trope. So, yeah, right. Yeah. yeah, He's really the full service, I think we can agree. Yeah. Uh, and so there's lots of sort of nutty stuff going on on the fringes. Or, you know, there's, you know, a formerly semi-well-known figure in conservative circles who's declared himself a Knight Templar in Texas. That sort of stuff, I think, is easier to mess with than, you know, stuff with a grand, the horror that big news stories usually bring with them. Uh, so, next person wants to ask a question, put up your hand, and you will have a microphone passed to you. Thank you. Um, what would Dragon Meat taste like, and how should I incorporate that into my campaign? What would Dragon Meat taste like? And Well, um, I'm Maybe it's not my place to say it, but dragon meat is English, so I think it would taste like nothing. <laughs> There's already a canonical answer to this, which is Christmas sandwiches. Right. That's what dragon meat tastes like. That's why I come here. It's nice to see you guys, but it's really about the Christmas sandwiches. And uh, how do you incorporate a Christmas sandwich into your campaign? You have, a, of course, a Christmas episode of your uh, campaign that you're running. So, for example, if I was... Uh, I'm between campaigns at, at the moment, but if I was still running my Canadian Shield campaign, I would find some uh, event that happened in Canada in the 1950s around Christmas time and uh, uh, work that in. So, Ken, what's your Christmas episode of your Delta Fall of Delta Green campaign? Uh, this you? is the because the Christmas episode is the end of our fourth season. Do not get me started on my players; they're insane. But uh, the fifth season is we go to Vietnam. So, fourth season is close off all the other loose ends. One of the player characters has been carefully building up the fact that she is the descendant of Crawford Tillinghast, the inventor of the resonator from From Beyond. And her father was a Delta Green lifer. And so the Christmas episode, because Christmas is a time for families, will be her revealing or her realizing that her father volunteered to come back into Delta Green to prevent her from being, shall we say, Terminated, And so it's going to be her and her dad. And, of course, what's the other Christmas element of Lovecraft? The festival. So Delta Green has set up a little office in the sleepy town of Kingsport, Massachusetts, to engage in some uh, high atmospheric research using the resonator. Sort of, sort of the harp conspiracy, just pull that back into the 60s. So it's a big project. They're trying to map Yogg-Sothoth and... Guess what? It's not going to go well. And so it's the player's job to prevent Christmas. Exactly. Yeah, to stop something horrific coming down from the North Pole and um, uh, visiting every child in the world uh, in one night. Questioners, hands up, and uh, we'll uh, pass the mic to uh, another questioner. Uh, which of your games is the best home for the villain Elon Musk? I would say Knights Black Agents being the James Bondiest of the games is his natural home. 
Uh, Robin alluded to his volcano lair. I have previously described him as ADHD uh, Tony Stark, so I think Mutant City Blues is another place to slot him. And I think essentially uh, the, the great thing about Night's Black Agents is that it posits that you can create a number of different sorts of vampires. So, you know, there's a, your classic stoker vampire, there's uh, psychic vampires. Uh, Elon, of course, is a charisma vampire, where he is trying to suck in other people's charisma and become cool, you know, and, and he, you know, he, he's not satisfied. He's still not cool, no matter how many people worship him. So this is why he's bought Twitter. And, of course, uh, this is... Uh, as I alluded to already, that the op against him is that he's going to enter a, a coolness vortex, and uh, I mean there may be collateral effects, but you know at least a vampire will be slain at the end of this. <laughs> Next question. Now that the queen has died, all money has the wrong face on it. The queen has died. <laughs> Holy crap! <laughs> that means I, Tom Tim, am king of the cats. <laughs> What, what uh, gaming potential is there in the fact that, yeah, not the money has the king's face on it? I mean, you're, you're in a position where you've got the old money is still in circulation and the new money is being printed. And so this, to my mind, in sort of an unknown armies type situation, is a liminal spot where a lot of magic that might ordinarily not work, Plutomancy specifically, becomes possible because the rules are broken. And if you get, and if you are able to, at this moment, you know, find, you know, a, a pound sterling that was minted by the hand of Isaac Newton when he ran the mint in the Tower of London, the first pound sterling, if you find that, you can use it to rewrite all the rules for financial magic. And so it's, it would be fun. I think you would need a group of players that either know nothing about or a lot about economics to play it. But it would be fun if you had a game where the players' machinations and the hunt for this first sterling is echoed in the fluctuations of the currency markets, the bond markets, the stock markets, you know, the you know international trade situation, everything else, and that uh, the switchover of monarchs because. Queen uh, Elizabeth, God bless her, hung on for literally eons. Everyone had a plan ready to go in like 1989, uh, and they thought this is going to be it. And they desperately had to scramble and introduce the euro instead, just so they could keep themselves in the game. That was the big ante they put down. So big euro, the big euro magicians, those jerks, are trying to recoup their giant investment that they made when they invented the euro. But of course. The only real money in the world is the, you know, the pound sterling. The doubloon was destroyed. The dollar was destroyed. That's the only one left of the old magic money. And so that's what the big stakes are about. And you can have the Europeans trying to silence it. And your plucky uh, British magicians are trying to uh, somehow magic up the restored uh, British economy. Hint, that won't work. Right. <laughs> I, I would alternately suggest that uh, I'm afraid that your country is going to become even less magical. That there's a going to be a numinosity gap when it's Chuck on the coins. He's just not a magical dude. Sorry. He may have some limited environmental powers, um, some being, you know, stuffy about architecture uh, feats. But basically, you know, Liz was super magical, and that's part of why she survived for uh, so long. And so when all of her money is, is out of circulation, the amount of mana available in this country will radically drop. 
And so this is the opportunity for all of the magicians who normally would, you know, slope off and sort of take it easy. They know they've got a deadline at which their, their ability to work magic is going to be radically reduced. And so all of them have to get all of their big stuff in just right before the final uh, money with Liz on it goes out of circulation. And so everything's going to start happening at once, but everybody's going to be slowly dwindling at the same time. So this is going to be the great war of the British sorcerers before finally, you know, it all totally closes down. And uh, in fact, maybe this was, you know, what Brexit was all about, was a, a realization that you just wouldn't be able to be magical anymore. So you might really, you know, lean into that. Right. The Best of Askfageln is now available at DriveThruRPG. All issues of Phoenix Magazine since 2013. That's spelled F-E-N-I-X. Can now be grabbed in special English editions. Containing stellar gaming material from our own Ken Height. And such other recurring stalwarts as Graham Davis. And Pete Nash. Also find Dice, the gorgeous photo book celebrating that classic gaming accessory. And Freeway Warrior, the series of post-apocalyptic choose-your-adventures by Joe Dever. And if you speak Swedish, not English... That's Swedish, not English. You can delight in every original issue of Phoenix. And the new Sagebrush and Six Guns role-playing game, Western. How do you say slap leather varmint in Swedish? Uh, oddly, Google Translate refuses to help on that. That's the best of Askfageln on DriveThru. Next question. Um, alcohol and magic have a long association, which we've discussed some of in the past. Um, obviously, for wine, we care about Dionysus, uh, absinthe is personified as a green fairy. Uh, do other forms of alcohol have tutelary spirits, and uh, how might they appear in more influenced games? Well, I mean, there's the traditional John Barleycorn, of course, and he is. One hesitates to say authentic because. British folklorists have managed to destroy any possible ability to recoup that, but I think he's probably more authentic than uh, some of the uh, latecomers. Another uh, classic example is Madame Jennifer, the incarnation of the spirit of gin, and when uh, the Parliament passed the Gin Act, they actually had a funeral for Madame Jennifer and it paraded through the streets uh, because suddenly you had to charge, you know, basically it doubled the price of gin in an attempt to prevent poor people from drinking. And we see how well that worked. But Madame Jennifer is another absolutely classic, absolutely legitimate is maybe a strong word, but is an actually real tutelary spirit of, of alcohol. And then America, of course, all of our bourbons have names. It's like, you know, Jim Beam, Elijah Craig, you know, Johnny Walker, all of those entities are, you know, you know, uh, eidolons or at least echoes of, of human lives. So they're sort of ghosts that are still, you know, flittering around. Right, so Jack Daniels is the incarnation of regret. Mm -hmm. (laughs) Basil Hayden is more expensive regret. Mm -hmm. And, you you know, you get to 
even weirder uh, two-layer space because in order to invent a new alcohol, of course, you have to call something down. And so the question is, like, who's left to contact? So, uh, for example, we have the unfortunate run now of deciding that there has to be vodka has to be available already in every available flavor. So, like, who's the tutelary spirit of blueberry vodka? Right? It's like you <laughs> a, know, bad, a bad spirit. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> these are all spirits of unnecessariness. Mm-hmm. And so uh, these, I think, are creating, uh, by bringing them down and introducing all of these alcohols, and the cream liqueurs uh, would be sort of the unctuous, weird spirits who, you know, want to... Uh, hang out and get comfy with you on the couch. You don't want them around. They cause heartburn. Uh, so it may be that, uh, you know, and the other uh, thing that uh, this is doing is that increasingly uh, in today's world, uh, unlike previously where you'd have to go to a tavern, people all have home bars and quite extensive ones. And I don't, you know, cream liqueurs are probably cream liqueurs that are not in bars anywhere. They're just all in people's homes or in the liquor store. So these are household spirits coming back. Right. So it may well be that you know if you want to contact the panaches of your household, uh, you you know get some off-brand Bailey's uh, coffee liqueur, and uh, you know get completely drunk on that, and then I'm sure you'll see a household spirit in your family. It will probably be mad at your Roomba, uh, but after that you can probably get down to some negotiation. Next question. Pass the mic. Boy, the question is, who's even left at this point? Right, right. I, I, I was always a huge Neymar fan. Oh, it has to already have been done badly, and we're fixing it. Or I mean, it could be. We, I mean. I, I think you're allowed to do a good Namor movie. Right. Because there hasn't been one. I guess I'd just be recycling a pitch that I actually made to Marvel during the weird alternate universe <laughs> year when I worked for Marvel. But uh, uh, Namor is a Shakespearean uh, tragedy. It would be amazing. I uh, I personally think... I mean, I'm an old DC guy. Uh, my my Marvel fandom is, is weird and sporadic. But uh, I think that it would be fun... To do a proper, you know, Zack Snyder's Daredevil. I feel like, you know, Snyder and Miller obviously share a sensibility. We saw that in 300. I think, you know, I would get Zack Snyder to direct that um, uh, final thing where he and Kingpin go to war and Daredevil, you know, comes out, you know, in just sheer Millerian macho uh, victory. I think that would be a terrific movie. It would not feel like anything else in the Marvel Universe. And, uh, you know, it would be a nice thumb in the eye of uh, Warners to give Zack Snyder a movie that is suiting his actual cinematic uh, uh, vocabulary. Next question. Pass the mic. In a world where we like superstitions and rituals, especially in England, let's be honest, impression, um, what do you declare to be the ultimate way of getting rid of a dice curse, please? <laughs> <laughs> I came to the experts. Right. Um, well, uh, since it's that time of year, and a cursed die, you know, it has accumulated all the cruddiness and, and uh, you know, all of the downside of, of uh, living uh, wherever it lives, because, of course, it isn't just England that has cursed die. But wherever you are, you have to come up with the best thing about the place that you live uh, in order to counter that. And so we're not going to, you know, worry about what the worst thing about uh, being here is. But what's the best thing 
that ever came out of uh, England. And of course, it's uh, sticky toffee pudding. And so, first of all, you carefully, hygienically cleanse your cursed dye, uh, and then you cook it into a sticky toffee pudding. Uh, of course, you remove and clean the dye before you eat the sticky toffee pudding. Uh, but then that will uh, you'll get criticals for a long time after that. It's like um, uh, putting the shilling in the Christmas baby. Ex- yeah, exactly. Kind of that's just, well, of course, that's just a, a warped version, a version of, of, of the, the original uh, cleansing. Yeah. Next uh, question. Back there. Yes, we're making some of you exercise, for which we apologize. Yes. Uh, keeping the food thin. Uh, we are at that time of year where it's cold and people are lazy. What is the best uh, low, slow, and easy? I'm a big fan of, and increasingly big fan of uh, sausage and white bean stew, which is basically the even lazier man's cassoulet because you're not mucking around with duck confit or even poultry necessarily. Although if you got some chicken legs, throw them in and. The good part is you get the best sausage that you can find or afford, and then you can put it with any old, you know, couple of cans of cannellini or Great Northern Beans, and it just, you know, the the synergy there is amazing. And I I love a, a white bean stew. Always have the Spanish fabada is amazing, but again, you know, that's work. Uh, literally, this is buy good sausage. You know, chop up your onion and your celery and whatnot. Uh, you're done. That, that's fundamentally it, and so it's uh, it, it's a, and you can cook it just for the half hour. You can you know, low cook it for forever. Either way, it's going to be great leftover the next day. So make you know double the amount that you want. I think that without going to any great effort, that is probably the um, uh, the slam dunk of a winter uh, slow meal. Uh, the thing that I found very comfortable and satisfying recently was a, uh, a sort of a, a barley risotto. So uh, to uh, cook barley and uh, selected uh, vegetables with some chana masala spice in the instant pot, which gives you the advantage of slow cooking. Uh, you mentioned laziness with the laziness of the <coughs> beloved instant pot. And then at the same time, uh, roast some vegetables uh, or or, uh, or broil them, and so uh, you know some nice parsnips or uh, broil some tomatoes, uh, some fennel, whatever looks good at the market and seems to go together. The whole point of this is not to have a recipe, but to have something easy to do. So you head to the market, see what looks good, and you've got your roasted vegetables on one side, and then you'll have some other vegetables in with the the barley when you're cooking it, so possibly an onion, maybe some celery so that there's a bit of flavor. But then you get the uh, benefit of the great roasted flavor of the most of the vegetables that you then mix into the barley, and you've got a, a nice mix of sort of uh, spice and interesting flavor combinations uh, with the you know interesting sort of comfort of, of barley. You just have to wait a little while before you eat it because it's when you remove it from an instant pot, it will burn your tongue off if you yeah. don't sit there and wait for a bit before you have it. And if you make it in the instant pot, you don't have to stir, which takes exactly. all the work out of it. Yeah. Next question, put up your hand and receive a microphone. Back, Back to, to the, the front. front. Now, now you guys are just trolling each other. <laughs> for the record, I approve of. Sword of the Serpentine is just taking Gumshu into Sword of Sorcery. What's the next big genre that hasn't gone into the I'm not going to tell you here because if we had it, we'd be pitching it to <laughs> right, yeah, Simon, to the, Cat. Simon the Cat. 
I, I would I would someday like to break the like the medical drama. I don't know that it's a big giant book, but it could be a thing that's a subset or a subsystem for something else. One of the TV series pitches that I keep around in my head is something called Arkham Knights, where you're the night shift at Arkham General Hospital. <laughs> and I think that would be a fun, like a, you know, maybe not a whole thing, but you could do that for Trail. And it's the medical drama. It's like, what's wrong with this guy? And it's a very, very standard mystery. Everybody knows it. Everyone's familiar with it. But you, you want to be able to, and this is the hard part, design it so that non-medical players and GMs can put something together that hangs together and feels right and gives you the satisfaction of solving a mystery as opposed to arbitrarily guessing at a, a, a pattern in a maze. That would be the hard part, again, why I haven't pitched it. But I think that that's a genre that everybody knows that is fundamentally a mystery and that is untouched, not just in Cthulhu, but in role-playing in general. I'll tell you one that the team shot down, <laughs> uh, which was, I did propose at one point a, a game where uh, it's angels and demons living together in a celestial city, and uh, you are solving crimes that are committed, uh, and you have a, the police department is, is split between angels and demons. It's sort of like, uh, I guess it's like Canada between uh, <laughs> Quebec and the rest of the country. Uh, and so you... No, no points for guessing which is which. Yeah. <laughs> And so uh, you have to, uh, yeah, of course, the, the demons are the Montrealers. Yeah, right. They're the laid-back people who complain that you just don't party hard enough, angels, and the angels are the uptight Torontonians. And, and I think that this would be, I guess, the mechanical thing would be that it would be designed for uh, one GM and two players. Uh, because, of course, uh, we had gumshoe, which is for groups. We have gumshoe one-to-one. And the immediate response of that to people was, what about one GM and two players? And it's like, it, can't we do every combination? <laughs> this would be the one to do it with. The buddy cop gumshoe. Right. Uh, but, of course, it would be nerd-probed. Mm-hmm. So, and what's more different yet secretly love each other but the angel and the demon who have to get together and solve mysteries together. And so there's, of course, a different protocol that you're using when uh, you know, you're interrogating a demon uh, versus interrogating an angel. There's all sorts of political considerations. And uh, the, uh, the balance of the city, of course, is, is ultimately a, a threat because it's always been 50-50, and now something's going to change it one way or the other, and you're uh, in the background of that uh, sort of political backwash. But that's a, an example of a gumshoe game where the setting is completely created, and you can't uh, refer, you know, it'd be urban fantasy in a way, but you can't re- refer people to the 12 movies that do right. that. Yeah, I mean, good omens, but a police procedural can only take you so far. Yeah. Well, that, that would be the pitch, I guess. Yes, right. Right. Delta Green Iconoclast, a campaign of horrors modern and ancient, brings a team of agents to a scene of terrors all too real. Mosul in 2016, held by the self-styled Islamic State in a reign of depraved brutality. From a small base at the Kirkuk airfield, the agents must research the horrors to come and prepare for a harrowing infiltration. ISIL fighters destroy mysterious artifacts. A Delta Green veteran goes rogue. Hidden myths permeate the Battle of Mosul. A demon god beckoned by a bloodthirsty cult. Plus terrifying supplementary material. Rules and guidelines for spying 
behind crime and backroom deals. New rituals. New tomes. And the dreadful details of a threat to suit all the evils of humanity. Available now in PDF. Or in glistening hardback. There we go. Uh, Ken often says the best place to start on creating a setting is start with Earth, but are there any circumstances where that's the worst thing to do? No. <laughs> <laughs> Robin? I, I, it's certainly not the literally worst thing to do. Yeah. Um, the, I, I guess the, the counter to that is that uh, if you're going to do something you know, historical, there are a lot of people who are at odds with real-world history, and if you want to do something completely aspirational and, and lovely if you want to have something said in a utopia. You can't set that on Earth, right? There are uh, select concepts that work better in uh, secondary worlds. I mean, the canonical exception is the future, when you're doing something in some science fiction planet. And if the, if the, if the goal is to have the uh, entire shock of the new, you know, different gravity, different uh, insulation, different everything else, then, yes, that's why you have other planets. That's why hard SF exists as a genre. And uh, people fight more over future Earth projections than they do even over, you know, this is what the world in 1940 is like. So I feel like if you're doing an SF game, there may be a justification for setting it on some originally created planet. Blue Planet, I think, is maybe the most triumphant version of that, where they wanted, Jeff Baker and, and the team wanted to make this Pelagian fighting for utopia eco game and setting that on a plausible future earth would have been a real reach and putting it on a, a fictional water world made a ton of sense so i would say the exception the the, the actually legitimate exception is uh, science fiction future games in a future planet next question Pass way the back baton. uh with the ongoing debate about independence of scotland and possibilities of uh, Irish implications going into sharp focus post-Brexit. What would be the major fay or supernatural implications of those sort of events or the UK? Um, I, I feel like you could go a couple of different ways with that. The, and a lot of it is going to come down to how fond are you of the early modern era? If you're against it, if you are mad that we lost fairies and magic, uh, then Scottish devolution or the unification of the five ancestral thrones of Ireland... Obviously, that's, you know, sort of your, your shadow run type event where, you know, the, the lids are off and, uh, the, the old spirits come back and you get to do cool magic and everything's cool. If, on the other hand, you happen to like, I don't know, the germ theory of disease or air conditioning, the return of magic is awful. <laughs> um, and you could have, you know, again, a unified Ireland while good in many ways, uh, geopolitical and otherwise, also, it, it lets a bunch of furbolgs come back. And uh, all the situations that got broken by the uh, cold, squinty-eyed rationality of uh, William and Mary come roaring back in all their ridiculous glory. So I, I think that you would probably want to go back to um, books like, uh, uh, what, what's the Keith Thomas book, um, The Decline of Magic or something like that. Anyway, very, very classic work of sociology about the quote-unquote disenchantment of the world. Much later, sociological research has undermined it. But you go back and you say, all the things that went away, put them back. And those might be good things, um, and they might be bad things. And I think for gaming purposes, what you want is a sort of a Wild West setting where no one is sure what works anymore. And you might be 
completely legitimately trying to restore um, uh, the, the you know the Orange Revolution and its uh, anti-magical pro-science uh, attitude, or you might be saying, you know, woohoo, banshees, gotta love them, and uh, and that could be fun. Um, I think that picking one side over the other, a la mage, is probably a way to cut off half of your good stories. But on the other hand. If ever one of your players is on one side or the other, lean into it. Right. Um, and, of course, Ireland would wind up ruled by a magical salmon. And so that would, uh, you know, cause a lot of disruption because I think that the salmon probably has a pretty radical eco-agenda and uh, uh, would be opposed to farmed salmon because, mm-hmm. of course, that's, uh, in, you know, slavery. So you could have all sorts of, you know, issues where the... Uh, various powers are coming back and they see the whole structure that exists and they, wait a minute, we also like air conditioning. Uh, the germ theory of disease, we can do without that, we have better magic, but there's stuff about the, the power structure and stuff that we want to sort of keep and you, so that you could also have a war uh, within the different elements of, of the uh, resurgent fairies as to, you know, there'd be uh, basically, you know, orthodox and refor- reformed. And they'd be and they'd be going at it, and so you're deciding in your player group because uh, you know is it fun to be the humans who are being deluged with that, or of course you want to play the fairies, right? And so you'd be the ones. Uh, what your player uh, character group does establish what exactly the new order is and what the boundaries between the modern and the old are. And in, a, in a lot of ways, it would feel like the aftermath setting in Yellow King, right. where the players are really sort of making decisions about the, the magical infrastructure as opposed to the governmental infrastructure of the new world that is aborning uh, even now. Next question. Next question. Earlier this year, I read an article about uh, the digital cryptids that an AI artist noticed was emerging in, um, in her artwork and I kept thinking about it and I thought it's such an amazing foundation for a game but the main problem is um, thinking of how to create a credible threat to the players without just like doxing them uh, what would you suggest in terms of uh, a threat from a digital cryptid? If you want to hear us do this for 15 minutes uh, go to Ken and Robin Talk About Stuff and uh, type in Krungus C-R-U-N-G-U-S which was another weird AI creature that shows up in one of the particular AI programs. If you ask it to do Krungus in a shopping mall, it will do a weird golem-like figure. So uh, this is something that we've tackled in detail. But of course, the issue with any weird thing that is being called into existence is it becomes a threat to the players, either because they think about it and begins to dominate their uh, their thoughts and determine their behavior. So you know, Krungus. Or, or whatever this creature is, starts to give the uh, instructions. And then, of course, its ultimate aim is to cross over uh, into the real world, which I think it would do using 3D printing, first yeah, of all. I mean, that's one strong possibility. Obviously, watch uh, the Japanese movie Cairo for another thing. This is the world of the dead penetrating into ours through technological interface. I did a page XX a while back. Uh, based on the old classic Fritz Leiber vampire story, The Girl with the Hungry Eyes, uh, because there was a thing that, um, I, I forget which side it was, I think it was the Israelis in the, the Civil War in Lebanon were building, basically catfishing uh, Hezbollah guys with images of you know hot fictional uh, Syrian women that are trying to you know lure them into revealing you know what their deployment is. And the notion that you're building this catfish to mess around with terrorists and if she takes on sentience then she becomes a problem and the uh, the girl with hungry eyes is 
an old library story about billboards. That's how old it is. But everyone who sees this one woman painted on a billboard, she leeches some of his life energy. And uh, he's talking about you know the uh, the, the universality and, and commercialization of lust, which is another classic vampire theme. So I would say you know that the creature will gain power whether the player characters you know so well I'm just shutting down I'm not looking at the computer anymore and uh, you know I mean good luck investigating the next thing you need to investigate but let's pretend but the trouble is you know just like any other website you know QAnon or whatever else you not looking at it does not take its power away so you're ignoring it but the digital cryptid is out there you know swarping people out and forming itself in 3D printing or in overprinting your uh, uh, nervous system or your you know reaction time, right. whatever the 3D else. The animation on TikTok is probably what it would do. Right? Yeah, That's right. The, the maximum, uh, and then it, it, it makes people do the little dances, and yeah. then suddenly your little dances, you oh, you're also growing horns uh, because that's what the thing does, and so that sort of notion of pollution and uh, contamination that I think is again very strong vampire war is what the digital cryptid is is going to feel like in play. Uh, next question, I think there's someone at the front, so please uh, bring the microphone all the way to the front. Thank you. I want to start running my first in-person tabletop game since pre-COVID. Mm-hmm. Um, and I don't know whether your gaming experience has been very by in that way, but is there anything you found from running games primarily online that you brought back into and to that was a new practice for running in person? Ordinarily, I would say that the degree to which we began to depend on visual aids and uh, you know Google image search you know, this is what that looks like, thrown up. That's something you can do very, very rapidly and very, very efficiently in uh, online play that you can't necessarily do as easily. But in fact, in point of fact, my Fall of Delta Green game was always done with everyone's laptop open on purpose and sending that kind of thing back and forth in Slack. But if you haven't done that kind of play and you have players who are disciplined enough not to check their Twitter or their email or whatever when the thing's open, then that can pay some real... Uh, dividends. Uh, if you've, as the GM, you found, oh, this is a cool map. Boop! Now everyone has the map. Uh, you know, this is what that weird, creepy bunker in the Adirondacks looks like. Boop! And then everyone is on the same page and can say, "What's that shadow?" And suddenly you have a sort of a, an inspiration mine uh, to play with. And there's no reason you couldn't have been doing that tabletop, but I think virtually it becomes more uh, more frictionless, and so you can take some of that back in. But it does depend on everyone being grown-ups, even if their phone's out. Uh, yeah, I haven't actually gotten to the point of uh, bringing my uh, group back in person, uh, but when that happens, I'll be glad that they'll all have their cameras on again. <laughs> <laughs> so we have time for one last uh, question, if someone has one. There we go. Okay, so... Please run the mic over to them quickly. Um, seeing as how we're getting very close to the end of 2022, um, I was just going to ask, uh, what piece of media nerd-orientated has struck you this year, maybe positively or negatively, you know, to um, If you haven't seen Severance yet, uh, it's something that, uh, it's a show that's on Apple TV. It's very science fiction-y, it's very Twilight Zone-y, but it hasn't gotten a lot of uptake, I think, in the nerd community for some reason, whether it's on Apple, <laughs> Apple because TV, it's on yeah. Apple or whatever it is, but it's, 
uh, well worth a look and very much in uh, if Rod Serling had an extended full series of something it would be uh, Severance and uh, mine is a 2021 uh, but it's the Senegalese film Salumi which is a war film and a western and supernatural weirdness and horror and it's or Salum is actually what it is and it's um, it's amazing and it's a tight 88 minutes so there is uh, just a whole world opens up to you when you're thinking and when I was talking about the, you know, the power vacuum in West Africa, you could absolutely tie that into this uh, this movie. And, and as a tribute to the way that how quickly world cinema goes into pop culture now, Netflix saw that movie and said, let's give that guy a TV show. And so now there's a buddy cop against a supernatural movie from Africa, or TV show from Africa on Netflix already. There we are. And it's uh, probably good, and neither of us has even had a chance to watch it yet. And on that note, stuff having once again been talked about, it's time to thank our sponsors. Atlas Games. Hot Brain Press. Asphagam. Art Dream. Dork Tower. And Pro Fantasy Software. Music, as always, is by James Semple. Audio editing by Rob Borges. Get your priority question-asking access by supporting our Patreon at patreon.com backslash Ken and Robin. Snag Ken and Robin apparel and other erudite merchandise at tpublic.com slash user slash Ken Robin. Find such classic designs as Excuse Me While I Nap This Out. On Twitter, he's at Kenneth Hyde. And he's at Robin D. Laws. See you next time, and once again, uh, we will talk about stuff.